Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams, where we tell the stories of the people saving nature in ways that are amusing, amazing and inspiring. Today I'm in conversation with Joe Harkness, a blogger who focuses on the topic of bird watching and its mental health benefits. You can find Joe's blog at birdtherapy.blog and you can follow him on Twitter at birdtherapy. And this is a topic that I think it's really important that Joe's been covering on his blog for the past few years. I've got some personal experience with mental health issues, with depression, and so I've really appreciated following Joe's writing uh, in recent years. And Joe's currently writing a book on this topic as well, and so I wanted to give this a big plug. He's looking for funding uh, to get his book published, and if you go to unbound.com, that's U-N-B-O-U-N-D dot com forward slash books forward slash bird hyphen hyphen therapy, then you can pledge as little or as much as you want to support him to get this book published. In this conversation, we cover Joe's childhood passion for birds and how he rediscovered that interest at a crucial moment during his battle with depression. And we talk about the amazing following that he's built up over the past few years through his beautiful writing about birds, the places that he visits and the beautiful landscapes, and mental health. And his writing is beautiful, but at times it's also gritty and honest as well. And that's a little bit like this conversation. It contains the normal, amazing stories of encounters with birds and other wildlife, but it also touches on the topics of self-harm, depression, drug and alcohol abuse, and suicide. And so I just wanted to flag that right up front. The sound quality is also a little bit uh, sketch at times during this call. Um, The sound cuts in and out a tiny bit while Joe's talking, and later on towards the end of the call for a couple of minutes, Joe's neighbour's dog starts barking in the background, and you can just about hear that. But you can hear Joe perfectly fine throughout the course of this conversation, and I really wanted to share this with you all. The Wild Voices Project podcast is available uh, on iTunes or Stitcher. You can subscribe to it. And we're part of a global project called Wild Voices Media, uh, which is bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring conservation professionals. So you can find out more about the podcast at wildvoicesproject.org and you can find out more about the global project at wild-voices.org. Now, let's dive into this amazing episode. Welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, And it's really great to have you on. I've really enjoyed, um, over the course of the day, having a read through your your guest blogs and articles and through the blogs on your site as well, which has been... brilliant really inspiring. Um, I'm going to start where I usually start with people, which is by asking, where did your interest in the outdoors, and I suppose in your case, particularly in birds, begin? Well, uh, when I was a kid, um, I used to go out with my granddad quite a bit. A bit of background about me is quite useful. Um, I My parents split up when I was four, and um, my mum wanted to get away from my dad quite quickly so uh she essentially ran away from him um so we came up to norfolk and had nowhere to live so we lived with my granddad and grandma for about eight years or so 
And during that time, uh, granddad was kind of like a surrogate dad to me. Um, and he worked as a carpenter, which meant he went out quite a bit to work. Mm. And uh, yeah, he started taking me out with him and pointing things out to me. And I have these like really strong memories of birds that he showed me. Great Crested Grebe, Kestrel. I've written about them in the book. Um, there's probably blogs about them as well. I lose track of what I've written about um, on there. But uh, yeah, they kind of sat with me, but I never kind of fully accepted it as an interest when I was a kid. I tailed off and became quite interested in football. Um, and then after that, I got quite interested in drugs and quite interested in uh, just doing like social things and, and lost kind of all that, I don't know, intrinsic interest in nature. Mm. And then when bird therapy came around and my interest in bird watching started, kind of resurfaced again out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, it, I, I guess it's always been there, but it needed a catalyst to come back out again. And uh, yeah, so when bird therapy started in or 2015-ish, I um, had already started getting into birdwatching at that point, but not in the way I have now. But I think what I'll do is I'll go back to that and give you more background on how birdwatching has changed for me at some point while we talk. But yeah, it, it's always been there, just suppressed. Yeah, right. yeah, we can, we can definitely circle back to that. Um, but I'm interested for a minute to stick on stick on your earlier experiences i think one yeah. of the ones that you've written about is the is seeing uh, having the great crested grebe pointed out to you from the boat yeah is that right? yeah so house broad so granddad's friends had a had their own boat and uh, i make that sound like it was it was grand it was just i think they could sleep on it it had like two berths at the front but yeah. we just used to go out for a few hours and Back then, Cell House wasn't like now. It's quite murky. It's it's got quite a lot of algae in it. You wouldn't swim in it now. Let's put it that way. Whereas when I was a kid, you just kind of would swim and play, and it would be absolutely crammed full of people. It still is now to a degree, but not in the same way it was when I was a kid. But that's just a societal thing, I guess. Mm. Um, and yeah, I remember Granddad always pointing out great crested greaves coots moorhens um it's probably about it i can remember there would have been more I, i'm sure like herons as well um and i think in the blog you read he would have said to me about how beautiful kingfishers were but we never ever saw one mm. um and then yeah i don't know what it is about great crested greaves i think it's because they're so regal so slender so kind of enigmatic, almost almost un-British, I suppose. <laughs> um, they, they, kind of, they kind of just represent something really beautiful to me. And yeah. uh, I think from him pointing them out, they've become a bit iconic to me. Um, I accept that they probably aren't iconic to a lot of other people. But I never saw them weed dance as a, a child. I've only ever seen that as an adult. So going back to them as an adult and seeing like another side to them 
that I hadn't seen is really cool as well. But yeah, they that and the Kestrel. He used to always point out a Kestrel. He used to say, "Oh, look, there's a Kestrel. I see one earlier." Over, I, I popped out for a bit to to the heath, which is part of my patch. Yeah, and uh, I saw one then, and I thought, "Oh, when I when I speak to you, I I will." no doubt regaled the story of granddad pointing out a kestrel flying into the wind and i sort of was waiting for this one earlier to just stop and hover which it did and uh, yeah it it all kind of makes sense if you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean i've definitely got a similar association i've written about this myself from um i've got one really strong memory of sitting on the end of my bed in my childhood bedroom and my dad pointing out a grey heron out of my bedroom window and just being stunned that there was a bird so big in this country and then the other one is my granddad who used to walk the Malvern Hills here quite a lot and still walks them a little bit would always come back and tell me if he'd seen or heard a green woodpecker and the other bird in particular was he'd always tell me if he'd heard a cuckoo and so those three species have particular resonance for me that still carries through to this day it's interesting you should say that about the size of the gray heron because i think when you're when you're small yourself when you're a child you are really really struck by the size of some birds and um i've had it's strange because as an adult i get that same feeling i think it's a, a thing about their majesty more than anything but i had a an experience with my granddad as an adult and we went to um hickling broad in norfolk i don't know if you've ever been been, there Um, yeah we went they do a boat trip which you can do um where you go to a couple of inaccessible hides that you wouldn't normally be able to get to um on foot and uh while we were sitting in the boat a great white eagle flew over the top and uh i'd never seen anything like it obviously i've seen a gray heron and that's kind of where the similarity is in, in structure, I guess. But to see something so clean and white and, I don't know, just it was just beautiful. It, it absolutely blew my mind. And I was just like, wow, how cool are birds? How have I never seen this before? <laughs> like, what, what is this and why is this not a part of my life? And from him being there as a as the person to kind of influenced me when it came to nature and birds as a child to then be there when an epiphanal moment happened when I was grown up was was pretty profound as well so he is the 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 connection for me he's the kind of the instigator of bird therapy whether he likes it or not (laughs) so uh, yeah that's really nice and that moment with the great white egret was one of the one of or so I read I read a blog about you seeing a buzzard, but the great white egret was one of the other key moments in kind of bringing you back to that interest in birds, right? Yeah, twenty thirteen, I had a a breakdown, a complete breakdown, and um, I, I had quite a little bit of time off work, and I went walking around Norfolk just to kind of get out of the house. I was doing loads of jigsaws and because uh, I don't play computer games or anything like that, and. Uh, yeah, I was getting a bit bored of jigsaws. And uh, my partner was just like, oh, you need to go out walking, get some fresh air. And I know people always say that, and it is really cliched, but actually when you're feeling really, really bad mentally, it is good to get outside. We know that, you know, there's, there's enough 
enough kind of media coverage about that now but um getting out and actually being outside was really good for me and then I saw on this particular day and I don't know whether it was because I was in the psychological position that I was at the time but because I saw it there and then that stuck and then it was about maybe five months after that that the great white egret and, and the hickling experience happened and it kind of consolidated what had been building up from the point of seeing this buzzard i'm not saying that if i wasn't in that that mental position that i wouldn't have followed the interest because i'm sure you know i would have done but it certainly set a kind of just this feeling of of freedom because of the way that this was a pair of buzzards and they were um, displaying over a tree line in the distance. Mm. And it, was, it was the multi-sensory experience of it. You know, the sun was out. Um, you can hear the birds call into each other. You can see them. They, the shapes uh, and, the, and the lines of the landscape were just so perfect. It was just such a perfect moment. And it just set this whole kind of mindset into into process so you say you're in a pretty pretty bad place at that time do you think there was anything yeah. that made you particularly open to to noticing those birds uh, i can i could give you a a kind of medical answer or i can give you a, a nature answer i'll give you the medical one <laughs> okay. um i just started taking antidepressive medication right uh, ssris so Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they increase the level of serotonin in your brain in order to lift your mood. Mm-hmm. Um, and having taken quite a lot of Class A drugs previously, I um, noticed the effects of the, of the medication quite a lot more, I guess, than maybe some people would. But at the same time, I dread to think if I hadn't had that experience whether I'd have been quite worried about the effects of the medication because to somebody that hasn't had that experience, that could be quite scary because of kind of increases in, in heart rate and um, increased like clarity and awareness. So I guess in a physical sense and a mental sense, I was kind of open to all, well, not all experiences, but, open to I'm trying to think of the right word um, what's the word when you not an epiphany but when you have like a you have a moment that just like absolutely takes your breath away and just inflates elation I can't think of you know what I mean <laughs> I know what it's... you mean I think you're describing it quite well without finding the actual word okay well <laughs> when you take like uh drugs from the mda family so like ecstasy and mdma they mm. the effect they have is, is called coming up as the levels of serotonin in your brain just explode and um i think because i was going through this kind of leveling out inside the levels of chemicals in my brain yeah i was just like everything was like really intense Inte- it was it was intense it was just really whoa 
like rushing and took my breath away. And, you know, um, I'll say it again, it could have been any, any, any time, any other place. I, I still would have carried on becoming interested in birdwatching and nature, but because of the increased clarity and the increased kind of sensory receptiveness, I, I think I just kind of was just like, whoa, you know, this is unbelievable. And I, I wanted that more and more. And, it, you know, that it's really interesting I'm talking to you about this because when I did a talk in Cambridge a couple of weeks ago, a woman at the end said to me, because you do like a and a and she said, mm. so how do you compare the effects of taking drugs to the effects you feel when you're birdwatching? And I was like, I have never, ever thought about that. And I haven't actually written about it. Maybe I should. So I sort of that that I didn't say that to her. I, that was in the back of my mind. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I I said to her, "Well, that's really interesting." And, you know, I, I talked to her about it, but I think in some ways there probably was a a crossover because I I stopped drinking, smoking. Um, I increased the amount of exercise I do. I completely changed my lifestyle around the same time. Mm-hmm. So, as well as birdwatching, just being like this amazing escape. It's also not a replacement for the things that I did before, but it has become an outlet for other tendencies that I may well have still carried on with. And I think any hobby, especially those that get you doing a range of you know, activities and you know, physical, mental, social, and so on, is good for your well-being. I strongly feel that. Like, like I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not into like computer games, for example, but I'm sure people who play them in a, a way that engages them with other people, you know, it's, it can be good for you. I'm not, I'd never slate another hobby uh, just because I'm into birdwatching. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> no, far be it from birdwatchers to slate other hobbies. <laughs> yeah, God, tell me about it. <laughs> um. So I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I mean, obviously it's, you know, as someone myself who suffered from very severe depression at times and from pretty dark thoughts, it's really inspiring. And, you know, I think sadly it's still quite brave that you are as open as you are about your past and your mental health issues um, and all the bird therapy stuff, which I'm sure will come on to to talk about a little bit more. Um, and there's yeah. people like you and there's people like, Isabel Hardman, who I know we both know, who yep. I think are, you know, setting setting a really good example and just making it making it a bit more safe and acceptable for other people to put their hand up and go, you know what, that's something that I've suffered from as well, and to break down a little bit of the stigma around this. I, one of my questions a bit further down, but maybe let's come on to it now, is whether or not you think there you think there is still a stigma attached to mental health issues in society and whether that's part of the reason why you do what you do i think we have to be sensible about not how much coverage mental health gets us that it needs coverage but with kids not not adults but with kids there there needs to be a really 
intent this is just me talking from like a teaching perspective mm-hmm. we need to be really explicit about how we teach kids about mental health basically we just have to avoid it becoming a cool thing for for kids like adult as adults we come from if you don't mind me asking how old are you 31 right you're exactly the same age as me so we come from a generation where like it wasn't i don't remember anyone at school having depression or anyone at school having a mental health problem. I don't even remember kids having behavioural problems at school. You were you were just naughty. I mean, I'll be honest. Or, I don't even think that I knew it was a thing I when I was I a teenager. To be honest, yeah, I don't think I, I'd even heard of it. Yeah, I don't think I did. And like, I look back now, and I've written about it in the book. You know, I, I, there probably was something going on with me from from the age of sixteen. Mm. But I, no one taught me about it. No one told me about it. It wasn't something that we talked about. So in that sense, it is phenomenal that we know about it and we talk about it and we recognize it. And, you know, I've had employers that have literally said to me, oh, you know, are you feeling all right? And I'll say, no, I don't think I'm going to come into work tomorrow. And they'll go, yeah, go bird watching," because they know it makes me feel better. Yeah. And that's great. And I'm lucky. And other people are not in, a, in the same position um, as that. But. There's a fine line between mental health being something that we promote positively and something that could become something negative in a completely different way to how it was when when we we were at school. It's about normalising it but still taking it seriously, right? Yeah, I think we can't... You can't, like, over-normalise it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if you kind of, I know it's, it's like a juggle position. If, if you, if you over, if you make it something that is, how do I put it? Such a difficult thing to get right when you talk to people about it. I just, I just worry about the kids. Do you know what I mean? I'm not worried about adults. We're talking about it now and that's really good. And the way that we talk about it is sensible because we're mature about it because we're adults. But I just really worry about kids and mental health. And I work with kids from troubled backgrounds and I just, yeah. We still haven't got it right, maybe, you think? No, it's going to take some time, definitely. But just going back onto what you were saying. um, Yeah, it's still stigmatised. And that is really obvious to me. Like if I'm trying to promote a talk or something, there's still only certain sectors of people that will engage with the fact that I talk about mental health. Um, and I'm now, now that more people are interested and like, for example, I went and met people, uh, we've got a massive library in Norwich, the forum, and they want me to go and do a talk there. Mm. But I felt I had to put an age restriction on my talk because I talk about suicide really openly mm-hmm. and I wouldn't, I don't think it's appropriate some of the things I talk about for like little kids and and families to sit and listen to. And then I just think, Oh, well, yeah, we are really far removed from that. Aren't we like what, you know, maybe a, a kid who's on the verge of going to high school should know about these things just like we didn't. But yeah, the stigma is still there. Um, ironically and, uh, I'll try not to moan about this too much, but there's also perhaps a stigma around bird watching as well, because none of the 
or health charities will endorse bird therapy because it it's not in their their kind of agendas yeah so i'm not mm. gonna dwell on this anymore but it's funny connecting something that has a stigma with something else that has a stigma and trying to fight the stigma because you're talking about something with a really negative stereotype with something else that has a really negative stereotype. <laughs> yeah, fighting kind it on of, both fronts. Yeah, fighting yeah, on both fronts, exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> well um <laughs> well well maybe we we don't have to we don't have to moan about it, but maybe we can mm. uh we can kind of prove them wrong a little bit through the rest of the podcast because I think I've got Too some right. questions that are hopefully gonna come on to show the the clear mental health benefits and other yeah. benefits as well. The wonderful yeah. benefits that bird watching can bring into your life in many different forms. Um, where did I want to go next? So I wanted to go go back slightly and you talked about mm -hmm. the great white egret and the sense of freedom and I talked about the the grey heron that I saw. Just mm -hmm. quickly, is there anything sort of inherent in birds, whether it's the fact that they can fly, that that's an essential quality to them that helps you or comforts you or... Yeah, I relate it back to garden birds, actually. Um, they're always there. They're so consistent. They are so reliable. Mm. People are not reliable. Yeah, that is just yeah. a fact. Um, I know that, and this this relates to something else I was going to talk to you about, in that I know I can go to like the Heath where I went this morning and go for a walk and there will be some birds now, mm. I could second guess what they will be by the time of the year and the fact that I go there all the time. But it's like my garden. Now, all the while that we're talking, over your head. <laughs> over my, the top of the laptop yeah, screen, yeah. Literally, over the top of the laptop screen are my bird feeders. And they do need filling up, actually. But there's, you know, a second ago, there was a chaffinch just, just hovering and feeding. And it just brings me so much comfort and stability knowing that they're always there and with my obsessive compulsive disorder i love the fact that birds live really ordered and like structured lives so everything about birds like they, they've just got this i don't know what it is it's, it's like this just amazing computer inside them that we don't really understand and when it comes to you know migration and um, where they will choose to feed and breed and how they'll come back to exactly the same place and how we know they do that because of our own ringing and stuff and and satellite tagging and and just the the feeling that no matter what goes wrong in my life or what I can't cope with in my life, there will always be birds. And that that is what it is about them. And then also, when you look through, I'm going to do, I'm going to gesture here, which nobody will be able to, <laughs> can't, to can't hear. Can't see this if yeah, you're listening, you but I'll try yeah, and describe so, it maybe. <laughs> so when you're looking through your binoculars, yeah, I'm doing like a big old yeah thing. Um, you or or through your your scope eyepiece, you you kind of go into another world because you're inside your. I call it optical cocooning. You're, you're like just inside 
the optical barrel of whatever you're looking for. You write about and, this particularly in relation to sea watching, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially sea watching, but even today, like I just whacked my scope up at the back of the heath overlooking a, a ridge of, of conifers and and just and just watch, watch some buzzers, watch some sparrowhawks, just watch them. And for that moment of time or length of time that that I am in that world of watching the bears i just don't think about anything else and i cannot stress to you matt how overactive my brain is um it's all part of my ocd but my mind is just going all over the shop all the time but when i'm bird watching in in those kind of environments not to be honest with you normally when it's just me it's different when you're with people and i don't knock bird watching with people at all and i love the social side of it too which is obviously something we'll probably touch upon later but just in that moment i it's just me birds that i'm watching and nothing else and i love it that's i absolutely love it it's the only way i can can describe it um I'm sure. I'm sure we will t- touch upon the the different ways or types of bird watching. So going out with yeah. people or going out on your own. I just wanted to pick up on something that you said, and I'm not. I'm not sure whether or not I picked up on you writing about this at all. Um, so you said about birds being, you know, it's like they have this incredible computer inside of them. Yeah. A lot, obviously, in this country, a lot of our birds are declining and not doing so well, and mm-hmm. that's a reflection of the state of our environment more generally. In your own words, what do you think, if any, the connection is between our, the greater rate of mental health problems? Maybe you think there are more mental health problems, or maybe you just think we're reporting them more, and the declining state of our environment as well, or our connection uh, to our environment? Yeah, see... I'm, and I'm so not necessarily pl- asking you to get political, but... No, and I won't do, because I always avoid it if I can. <laughs> but um, I think I'm really privileged and lucky to live where I do in Norfolk you know I mm. I go out of my my house and, and drive for five minutes and and I'm in an expanse of, of heathland that is just it's magic it's it's beautiful and I have access to that and I can't imagine what it would be like to live in an urban area with no green space and i've been reading some research recently about the lack of green space in in urban areas and the lack of interaction with nature and you know we've there's tons of literature now about nature connection and 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 kids and i'll rewind it what you said and then to my my kind of key feeling about this and it's going to come from a teaching perspective again, but yeah. the problem lies with the fact that young people are no longer really encouraged to engage and connect with nature. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I've written about it anywhere, so you won't have read about it, but it's in the book. I took this lad bird watching. I say that I didn't take him bird watching, right? He was kicking off at school. I hate that term, and my partner tells me that I shouldn't say it, but there's no other way of describing this young person's behaviour because they were actually kicking stuff and breaking it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, get him a car, 
we're going out and getting away from the situation. And he goes, I'm from getting in your car and all this. And I said, no, nah, look, come on. You need to get away from here. So I took him to Whitlingham. Do you know Whitlingham? I just outside Norwich. No. Find gravel workings um, that are now really kind of nice-ish uh, nature site. And um, without going into the whole story, uh, he saw a kingfisher that day, and he'd never seen anything like it. And it and it absolutely blew him away. You know, he had a kid here who was from one of the most economically deprived areas in Norwich, mm. seeing something that he may never see again, and hadn't seen before. And I realised that the disconnect was greater than I'd ever realised. Mm-hmm. It was just something so much more profound and worrying and you'll know this because you're on social media we only see the kids that engage with wildlife and nature in a way that would interest other people who interest nature and you know who I'm talking about and I don't need to name names because there's that few of them and there are what millions of other kids in this country who are not engaging with nature and the problem is is that if they're not then who's going to care in 30 years time who's going to care in 50 years time now without getting political i listened to mark avery talk a couple of weeks ago and i don't normally kind of like to uh, cross over politics and bird watching mm-hmm. but he brought in another perspective of it to me that i hadn't I didn't understand like I I tried to purposely avoid um the whole grouse moor thing because I don't really want bird therapy to get tied up in that because it's not what I write about you know I write about nature and why it's good for mental health and why it's been good for me politics however I went away from his talk and I just couldn't stop thinking about it and how I probably could be as a person more active. Um, so yeah, I did look at some plans for some developments in my area and read about how they would impact environmentally. Um, and just wrote a few comments on a few applications and things and got a bit more proactive. I felt a bit, a bit empowered, I think. Um, and that's the other side of it. It's, it's all well and good us kind of going down the political route. But I think if we spent a bit more time getting people to understand how um, beneficial connecting with nature can be for well-being overall, we might be able to change how it is sitting in, uh, in and in learning as well. So the 25 year environment plan or 20 year plan, whatever it was had, a couple of sentences in it about engaging kids with nature mm. and nature and well-being and that was kind of it that was the other stuff in it was great and needed and you know all about infrastructure and and that political side of, of it but um yeah still not enough when it comes to well-being and uh we've got to start with the younger generation and that that is really yeah 
all, all I can say about it. But you are right in when you say there is a drastic increase. And yeah, it is hugely affected by the fact that people don't go out anymore and do just, you know, when I was a kid, all I did was go out and like climb trees and build dens and like, just, you know, just be my mum would be like, go out in the morning. Your tea, your tea will be ready at six. If you come home for lunch, it will be like 12. That was like it. And then I'd just go out. And now I just, I don't even see, you know, there's no kids playing in my road. I haven't seen any kids out when I drove out to where I was going. There were no kids out there. Like, it's just, it's I don't know. Strange, yeah. It is unbelievable. And, you know, I've had classes of like, I never teach big classes because of the nature of the kids I teach. But if there was like five or six kids in a class, not one of them would like go out and do outdoor things. And I might find the odd kid that went fishing. And there does seem to be a bit of a resurgence in fishing as an interest in, with teenagers um, that I've met anyway. And it might just be a Norfolk thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. It's just a complete disconnect. Yeah, I'll leave it at that, I think. Mm, that's pretty nice. Um, okay, I'm going to move on because I've got so much I want to ask you about and I'm aware of your of your time constraint in, yeah, in about 45 funny. minutes. Um, so I wanted... Hold on, we've got, a, we've got a Dunnock feeding on the deck. Oh, excellent. We can get live yeah. updates from your feed. Well, not yeah. live, but... My, my favourite bird, the Dunnock. Number one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm not going to go down the whole underrated and overlooked route. Just I've written a blog about it. There's a great blog about that. Yeah, that yeah. Read read the blog, people. It's good. <laughs> um, I did want to ask though. My next my next question was going to be, and yeah, there is a blog about this. So maybe you want to pick another one. I wanted to ask whether since you picked bird watching back up a few years ago, whether you've got a particularly yeah. special memory or moment and one that clearly stood out to you and stood out to me was was the snow buntings when you saw them for the first time but you've written a blog about that so if you want to if you want to tell that story that'd be great if you want to pick a different one that would also be great do you know when i i've been sort of cross editing bird therapy now just to make sure i'm really really happy with what i send off to Mm. to be published if it gets that far Mm. um and when i read it back like every experience that i've written about has been unbelievable just just go go through my notebooks and just read the birds i saw on that day and i just get transported right back to where i was and what i was doing and how it felt and what it looked like and what the weather was like everything just comes flooding back i love i love it it's like a like memories in a in a little notebook that just come alive um yeah the snow buntings were were really really memorable but uh, experience on blakeney point which i have written about but it's so old you might not have seen it um basically i had a couple of friends who spend a lot of time on blakeney point do you know do you know blakeney point i've i've walked blakeney point for yeah. a blue throat that i saw for about five seconds and then i walked back okay well i <laughs> For anyone that doesn't know, uh, who's listening, who doesn't know what Blakeney Point is, just uh, it is a shingle spit that juts out into the North Norfolk coast. And because of where it sits, 
it is just an absolute migrant trap for birds. Um, and these two friends that I went with on that day, um, I think it was August the 25th, 2015, off my head. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that that was it. Um, because I always remember August the 25th as being a good good day for birds if there's easterlies. But yeah, um, they told me all these stories about perfect conditions um, when easterly winds with a bit of a northern kind of tint into them are hitting Blakeney Point and um, rain comes across and meets um, migrating birds above the point itself mm-hmm. and grounds them and and what they what they see as they fly in to the rain clouds and the rain is sort of lots of vegetation at the far end of Blakeney Point so they will drop into it and I was with with some of my friends and we almost turned round because one of them got some sand in his eye and was getting <laughs> it's pretty funny at the time um but he wasn't best pleased and we'd not seen a lot either we we'd seen um a couple of pied fly catches um maybe one wind chat mm. maybe maybe a, a wheat ear or two and like, oh, maybe there'll be something at the end maybe, you know maybe there'll be something when we get up to there's an area they call the laboratory and it's got some plants around it um and there's a i can't remember what it's called now but there's a little tiny oh the plantation i was going to say there's a little oh, tiny yeah, plantation yeah. it's called the plantation um which is near there as well and they're kind of like the main places and we were like yeah yeah there'll be something there um and we got there and and there wasn't anything and it was just like oh you know this is not great carried on walking and it started to get a bit cloudier and i remember one of my friends just there's a modern tease. And there was a, a Montague's Harrier, a juvenile bird, just flying over the bay of my harbour on the other side of Blakeney Point. And it must have just come in. And that kind of renewed the optimism and got us pumped for, for seeing more. And out of nowhere, this cloud just rolled in and... You know that saying, the heavens opened? (laughs) Well, they really, really did. Um, I didn't have waterproof trousers on either, which wasn't great. Um, But yeah. uh, On the upside, there was a Montague's Harrier. (laughs) Oh no, it gets better, it gets better. (laughs) So it really, really, really started to rain. Like, really. Oh, actually, I think before then... We might I might be missing, you know, muddling my days up. We had a Rhineck as well. Um, yeah, yeah, we did. We had a Rhineck, and we we're standing there watching this Rhineck, and it started to spit. And then there was a red star on a post behind us that had appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and then you started to see more and more birds as the rain increased in mm. tenacity. And there'd be like a couple of willow warblers that have clearly just dropped out of the sky and then there'd be like a wheat here to your left and then birds started to move between the vegetation and it started to rain harder and when we got to the plantation itself there was a line of pied fly catchers sitting on the fence <laughs> and 
I think my mate counted them and there was like 12 or something. And there were, like, honestly, there were birds everywhere. And I think our final kind of tallies were something like 100 willow warblers, uh, 60 pied flycatchers. Wow. Um, sort of like double figure, maybe 15 wheat ears, red starts. Um, the right. Montague's Harrier that had been the kind of precursor to it. It's almost like the Monty's flew in and bought the weather behind it. And then I don't think I'll ever experience fall conditions like it because that's what it's called a fall because birds literally fall out of the sky. It's just so. I will just never ever forget it. I don't think anything will ever come close to how good it felt to be absolutely wet through and surrounded by birds that had just met this weather front and been forced down. And yeah, I just, I'm, I just can't, it's something that you can't describe. It's just utter elation. So much adrenaline from something that's completely natural. And almost freakish because it doesn't happen very often. There's a really old birds article from like, I don't know, 80s or something where they wrote about the great fall of 56 or something. And there was like a, a fall in Lowestoft and all along the Suffolk coast and then up into the Norfolk coast. And there's a, a bit in the article where a red start lands on someone's head <laughs> and, like, and just stand, like sits on their head. Um yeah, so oh, the male chaffinch is back, by the way. Oh, excellent. Yeah, he uh, he's taken up residence. I think they've got a nest nearby. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that experience on Blakeney Point was just magic. And then I kind of returned back to birdwatching locally after that because it had took me to such a level of, of joy that I felt fulfilled and was just happy to enjoy my area and attach any kind of desperation to find or see anything because I'm not into like twitching. I'm not into, you know, finding as much rare stuff as I can. I'd much rather find something scarce on my local lake because it's just what I like doing. Um, so, yeah. That was intense, just absolutely intense, really good. Um, So I did want to ask about the balance between, you've kind of just answered it, the balance for you between going after a bird or just birding locally and also come back to that that, uh, topic that we touched upon about the balance between birding on your own and birding with other people as well. Yeah, so when I first started writing about bird therapy, I... um, I really wanted to try as many different ways of bird watching as possible to see what felt right for me. Um, and I had a friend who he's really into like listing birds and having a Norfolk year list. So just every bird he could possibly see in Norfolk and he doesn't drive. So he would, well, I'd pick him up um, and he'd say, right, are you up for going here? And it was kind of a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm always going to say yes, because he used to give me petrol money. So I'm not going to say, <laughs> say no, no, we're not going there. Um, 
and thanks to him i've i've seen some really cool birds like i saw icterine warbler um marsh warbler um he he would like he wanted arctic turn on his year list because he hadn't seen knew there were some in wells harbour so we'd we'd go there and just to see but i'd not seen them and then you know on a, a future date i had one at my local patch over the lake and i wouldn't have known what it was if it wasn't for having seen it with him so i'm really thankful of of seeing different birds and it, it helps to narrow down what you see yourself but in may in 2015 i think it was may yeah there was a citral finch in norfolk um mm -hmm. burnham ovary dunes it was a they're an iberian bird that shouldn't be here and i think i'm right in saying it was the second record for britain but the first record on mainland britain because the first one was on the shetland islands i believe um so when i picked him up in the morning he was like Whoa. Fancy a natural finch? And I, he, he wasn't shaking. He, like, he was a little bit flutter, though. <laughs> yeah, he, he was just like so up for it. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I didn't even know what it was. And that, he sort of explained to me what it was and dangled a picture in front of me while I was driving. And uh, that was like what we were doing. And when we got to um, Holcomb Car Park, there was a... Uh, so many birders and like i've written about this in bird therapy because they were all like wearing kind of green stuff and had their scopes on their backs and were all following the path down to burnham overy dunes it kind of looked like infantry marching it was really surreal um so we joined in with the march now my experience of a twitch uh, up until that point had only been like i don't know no more than 10 bird bird watchers lined up watching um and usually those numbers would dwindle um while i was there and there'd be sort of four five six people and uh yeah when we got to this area that this bird was in there was there must have been a hundred or so people at that point that we got there and that only increased and the atmosphere was really really frenetic and i when i get quite anxious i go into like defense mode mm. and if people say things to me it's a personal attack and i i felt so uncomfortable i didn't know I literally didn't know how to behave and like in a way that was appropriate for this situation because it was such an Indian situation. And he and I got into this sort of position where we could see it in this hollow and everyone's like peering and moving and really like, oh, they want to see it so badly. And this bloke behind me goes, have you seen it? And I was like, yeah yeah I've, I've seen it and i honestly i swear he picked me up like under my shoulders and just moved me he's a big big bloke like hench bloke picked me up 
put me down and got into the space where I was and started looking. And I was just like, whoa, what has just happened? And my mate was like, oh, let's go around. And we moved to another position and more and more people were coming. And there must have been a couple of hundred people at that point. And I was just like, do you know what? I want to go. And like, to his credit, all about it. And we went and sat in, there's a hide nearby. I think it's called the Joe Jordan hide. And we went in it and it was just me and him. And we had a chat about it and our views were very different. But he understood where I was coming from, like with the mental health aspect and how uncomfortable I felt. And yeah, from that point on, I was looking at, at my records to make sure I'm right in saying this, but we didn't go to another kind of twitch after that. Anything we saw was either targeted to go and see a bird for, for his year list or um, it was, there'd be like a few people looking at a bird because we'd be going after it had first been seen. So less people wanted to see it. Um, then in August, Blakeney Point. So that was May, the Citral Finch. Yeah. Yeah, August then that year, Blakeney Point. And I was just... It was epiphanal. I was like, do you know what? I am now going to follow my course in birdwatching. I've I've done stuff with other people and for other people. Now I'll do what I want to do and just enjoy it. And then I found myself a local patch. uh, And the rest is literally history because I hardly (laughs) go anywhere else now. Um, And the beautiful thing about that is... I know the place so well. I, I literally know it inside out. Not just like where I walk and what I do, but I know now know a few of the residents because it's a private park, like a private residential park that I go to. It's got some lakes and some woodland, and you know I know people there, and I almost like so the swans are nesting this year, and it's the same pair, and I know it is, and I just I just know what the birds are going to do where they're going to go. Now I've watched them. Yeah. When they get flushed by a dog walker and like return back and all congregate in a tiny little area of the lake when it's frozen. And I know the territories of the white throats and the black caps. So I just know it. I know it all. I'm, so for example, I know that today is the earliest date I've had a ring or at the Heath part of my patch. So I've been there twice today just to check to see if there's a, well, before that sounds excessive. It's literally like a 10 minute drive from my house. So it's not, I'm not going that far. Um, but, and I can pull up and just check from the car and go back again. No ring all today. Um, Everything seems a bit late this year, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely been pushed back by the, the beast from the East. Yeah. Um, we, we were hit quite badly in Norfolk by the snow. Um, so badly that I had a field fair in my garden, which is really quite scarce for here. Mm. So um, that was really good. I just became really focused on going to the local patch, but for several reasons. One, it was geographically and financially easier to to visit somewhere local. Um, but also I... I wanted to explore my relationship with a place and with place in general, like the concept of place. Mm. Um, and in order to do that, I need to 
can feel the seasons change. And it, I wanted to understand how bird watching and birds are part of something bigger. And the only way I could do that was to really immerse myself in it. And uh, yeah, I still have friends in bird watching locally. Um, in fact, recently we set up a, a jazzy WhatsApp group for our local area um, sharing bird sightings. And it has brought us as, as a group of people quite a lot closer together in a social sense. And we spend when well, I spend more time with people now than I did before um, because we share that local interest as well as the collective interest of being interested in birds and birdwatching. We also share that kind of let's share and share alike, um, which technology allows us to do now. We never used to. I was reading, you spoke to Stephen Moss recently, didn't you? I know Stephen quite well, yeah. I read The Social History of Birdwatching, his book, as part of my research. He was really generous, actually, and sent me a copy of it because I couldn't find one anywhere. And um, there's a a bit um, in there about how in the, like, I think it was the 70s or the 80s, in order to share bird information there'd be like one person who had access to a phone who would ring one other person who would then like cycle and tell someone else who would then tell i don't know just these networks on the norfolk of, coast there would be there's like this one pub or cafe right it. which it's had cafe, the phone and it? everyone used to go there to that yeah, one place the, for the news yeah the cafe where they all and someone had to sit by the phone on a shift basis in order to take <laughs> the information and i just think wow like in the group today we've just you know i had um my first uh, small tortoise shell flying today oh i had my first um, small tortoise shell today yeah yeah so definitely warm enough now, sort of hitting the 10 degrees um sustained temperature and uh i um you know i can just share with them that there's no ring oozle there now nobody else would care about that i wouldn't post on social media oh yeah no ring oozle today because no one is really interested in that but because we've got like this social dynamic in our group we're able to interact on a different level Mm. and that's where sort of going back to the point of having a shared and collective interest comes in um i've written a blog you might have read called the binocular code um when you wear binoculars it's like an open invitation for people to come over and ask you either yeah what are you doing or if they've got binoculars it's the seeing anything What's about, have you seen the insert scarce bird that people have seen? Um, Yeah, they they provide this kind of calling card, don't they, for for the interaction. And I think that's really good. Birdwatching is more socially acceptable now. And it goes right back to our first conversation about mental health, doesn't it? Like, you know, as as quirkiness becomes cooler, it becomes more normalised for for us to to be out and doing that and people so many more people talk to me now than they did before um but yeah going back for me bird watching on my own is is my escape and my um kind of outlet for my mental health issues but on a social level as well because i when I chose to stop drinking and change my lifestyle, I lost quite a lot of friends um, from previous social circles that just involved, you know, going out and 
and and getting absolutely wasted and yeah so i had to kind of rebuild friendships um and they came through bird watching and uh having that shared knowledge and interest uh was the natural catalyst and foundation for that and that is another way that bird watching is so so cool like in my local cafe there's somebody that that's there and they don't they're not having a great time with their mental health, but they've just joined the local birdwatching group that I'm a member of to try and broaden their experiences and their social interactions. And joining that club when I first started birdwatching was like an amazing thing for me because <laughs> I was like 20 years younger than anybody else there. But that's not an issue because... I literally just felt like they wanted me to be there because they wanted the new generation of birdwatchers to be involved and they wanted some enthusiasm and kind of not enthusiasm. That's not fair. They wanted some energy, if you like, kicked mm. into the club. Yeah. And um, yeah, that it was just, I've described it in the book as like a cozy hug off your grandparents, which they're probably not going <laughs> to like when, when it comes to them actually reading that. Um, it did. I just felt welcome, and I've always felt welcome by by bird watching and the people in the hobby. So I want to um, I want to I want to move on to the book and um, yeah yeah. Well, I want to want to get to that by way of asking what's probably an obvious question that I haven't asked yet. So a moment ago, you were talking about the importance of place and exploring yeah. place and. You know, I'm going to include a link to your blog because it's just amazing. I there was a passage Thank that you. I read that I picked out that isn't about birds, so I'm going to, just going to read a couple of sentences from your blog. The yep. lime and mint greens of the lakeside and surface vegetation coalesce with the midnight black water surface. Intermittently, this would be so lit up by the sunlight that it transformed to glass, and I could see the caramel-coloured lake bed. Moving upwards, the dullness of the water was sliced across by by the surrounding vegetation meeting in a confusion of yellows and greens. As my eyes rose further, the greens became darker and stronger as they turned into deciduous trees, standing majestically above the reeds and shrubs at the lakeside. These formed an undulating border with the azure blue sky, with no wisps of cottonwool-like clouds to be seen. Time had stopped as I'd fallen into the melting pot. Which was just an incredible... <laughs> Wow, yeah. that 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 passage alone blew my it took my breath away, like blew me away. And I suppose... you made it sound so much better when you read it out loud. <laughs> I'll give you that. No, reading it in itself was amazing. So I suppose the obvious question is, you know, why did you decide through the blog and through the book, which I'd really love you to talk talk about a little bit? Why did you decide to share all of this? And I suppose to start bird therapy, why did you decide to tell people this story as opposed to just experience it yourself? Yeah, so when I, I'll tell you exactly how it came about. I made a friend who, who was a close friend and it was through bird watching, and we talked about mental health as friends and we talked about it while we were bird watching. And I had by then realised that I was gonna kind of pursue a blog um originally i think it was just an another outlet for me while i refound uh, who i was 
um, in life in general. And uh, I was writing about birdwatching experiences and how they were good for my mental health, but I wasn't really writing about the kind of wider side of it. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote about, I think it was about that experience on Blakeney Point. And that friend sent me a message saying, excuse my language, but he said, you can fucking write, you can. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can, can't I? And I was like, hmm. And because I'm a teacher, I was like, okay, well, I can talk the talk. Can I put it into a form that is accessible to even more people? So I started playing around with my blog a bit without telling anybody. And some of my blog posts became more let's not even go down the road of talking about what constitutes as nature writing. We'll save that for something that's else. An, that's a whole separate yeah, podcast. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, but I started experimenting with what you could consider to be nature writing techniques. Um, I started doing a lot of research into mental health and birdwatching and um, this coincides with me reaching an equilibrium of recovery from being in like the lowest point of my mental health. Um, so we're talking like several um, attempts at taking my own life and kind of being resigned to never achieving anything um, that I'd wanted to. Then again, I hadn't really wanted to achieve anything. I didn't really care, but I've just you know, doing something positive. Mm. And as people started to interact with what I was writing, I realized how many other people felt similarly about birdwatching and nature. Then I realized that I wanted to compartmentalize birdwatching and its benefits for mental health into one thing. And that same friend said, nobody else writes about it. You can do something really good here for you as well as for other people and I I was like wow I I can can't I and then one of my mates I used to play football with designed that logo for me the the brain with wings um I was probably his most pedantic customer he's ever had because it had to be I had it in my mind and I'll tell you what what he created is what I had in my mind he got it so perfect I can't thank him enough. And he did it for nothing because he was my friend. I'm so lucky. But once it had a kind of a flag, if you like, I could fly it. And then I started working on it being a brand. And then I got really, really carried away with it. And I had all these amazing ideas in my mind about engaging other people with birdwatching. But I... not privileged background and I have to sustain a full-time job um, to live the life that I do and I basically haven't ever been able to fully focus on those dreams of engaging other people with with birdwatching 
just because I want to help them in the same way that I can when I teach. And I almost sacked it all in because I was like, I can't, I can't do this. And I then thought I've written enough to maybe tentatively put a book together. Can can I do this? Can I achieve this? And then I was like, yeah, why not try? So I did it. I wrote it. Then I hated it. So I wrote it again. <laughs> Um, but using what I'd written as a kind of foundation for that. Um, and then I was like, oh, this is all right. I wonder if, if anyone will, will publish it. And I'd not, not really looked into the publishing industry very much. And I don't think I was quite prepared for how much I would get rejected. Mm. And, uh, I really struggled with that because I saw it as a really personal attack because the book is personal. And a couple of people that gave me feedback were like, oh, it's too, too personal and all this. And we can't take a gamble on it. And I, I, you know, I almost was like, oh, what's the point? I I got really upset. I actually think I cried about it, if I'm honest with you. But I don't know what it was, but something made me not give up. And... I put a, a tweet on the Bird Therapy Twitter saying that I was struggling to find a publisher um, because my writing is... is and so two things happened at this point. One is the writer Patrick Barkham agreed to look at a chapter of my work and instead of just sending me back an email like a publisher or an agent would just saying can't do it and maybe put in a sentence why he he wrote me an essay really of how I could improve my writing um and instead of again viewing it as a personal dig because I love his writing and I really respect him because I have met him uh, out and about at a dawn chorus walk and we Mm -hmm. talked a lot and you know I really I felt I connected with him really well and and I took his feedback on board and started rewriting what I'd written not like rewriting it as in rewriting it but just changing the way it was written um and at the same time um someone tagged me in a tweet saying Simon at Unbound you might be interested in this and then Simon Spanton who's now the prospective editor of Bird Therapy um also worked with some other really good nature books as well. He's, he's bang on. Um, he was like, nah, it needs to be out there. Um, let's do it. And then the, the rest was history. But because I'd spent three years doing it and tried so many different approaches and written some things and they haven't worked and done all these different things with it, it's kind of become right, if that makes sense. It is where it needs to be. Um, and then I want the book to be out there so people can read it, can read my experience, can read how it can help them, um, you know, back up some of the things that have been written. I'm not a scientist. It's not a scientific study. I haven't walked around with, like, blood pressure monitors and can prove that it is calming in a scientific way. It's uh, it's a purely anecdotal, but I had a survey run in for years and ended up with 400 usable responses that form part of the book. 
so there is data there that backs it up but anyway um i want the book to get out and then as we've spoken about i'm expecting my first child so that becomes like everything um and you will understand this because you're the same age as me i'm still young so i've got many many years to do the practical side of birth therapy with the book as kind of like living written proof that it is a thing and i think approaching it that way has been the right way and now i look back and think i oh, do you know what it's so good that i got rejected because i wouldn't be as connected to it as i am now and so invested in it but not invested in it which i could have done i think if i'd have gone down the traditional publishing route i i still don't really understand it but i think things would have been very different i don't know if i'd have managed things very well but yeah kudos to simon for taking a gamble on it and for unbound to give it a platform um it's making like pretty good progress um and people can people can go on unbound i wanted to make sure we got this in people can go on unbound and support it to be published right financially yeah um basically there's different levels of uh, for people that don't know how crowdfunding works you you put your money in because you believe in something really and uh and then hopefully the right amount gets raised and we can go with it um there's different levels of pledges you get different rewards obviously the book is fundamentally the main thing that comes out of it but there's other things as well um art photos um just agreed with someone to get some little bird therapy notebooks for people to take out with them when they go bird watching uh to go on as another pledge reward um in the coming weeks so yeah it's cool i'm enjoying the the process and i'm being really strict about how often i like look at it and stuff because you could become really obsessed with it um i think i could quite easily just sit in front of the computer refreshing it all day but that is so unhealthy so i'll go out to the patch and look for ring oozles instead because <laughs> that is healthy um, yeah so yeah, that people can go on there and pledge it. Um, Robert McFarlane, Stephen Moss, Tim D have all pledged towards the book. Um, Robert McFarlane called it a, an open-hearted and moving project, which is like a pretty ringing endorsement, I guess, um, from you know an absolute luminary of of writing, not just writing, but writing in general. I must um, say, I'm you know. I'm glad that you've you're not only going to publish it but I'm glad that you're you've written something that is so personal and that you know you haven't you haven't gone down the route of a publisher who would have whittled that down and taken that out of it because I think can I tell you about the opening paragraph Matt (laughs) yeah go for it okay the opening paragraph of bird therapy is a description of me just about to hang myself and I know that is intense and scary and something that people don't like reading about talking about knowing about but I don't know I wanted to start at the lowest point of my life in order to rebuild and share you know what I keep saying to people this only have light if darkness exists yeah so i wanted that darkness to be there 
And then I do say straight after, don't stop reading because you think that this is going to be like the most horrific thing ever. Um, you know, it is a really positive story and a story of how birdwatching changed my life. And in order for you to understand fully the change it's made, you have to understand how bad things can get for people. Um, obviously, it's worded a lot more eloquently than that. But um, yeah, I, I wanted, I want to share what it feels like because that's the hardest thing when we go right back to what we spoke about, about stigma and stuff. Yeah, we can talk about mental health and we can have mental health on the news, mental health media, but it's still not never really talked about at that level. You can like, have the statistics, you can have the headlines, but thank you've also you, yeah. got to have the real the, the real stories of actual people going through it. And for me, you know, I've I've um there's a couple of people in recent months who I've come across. There's a guy in the US called Rich Roll who runs a podcast about health and wellness and diet who in his 30s was um, was struggling with alcohol and with drugs. And, um, you know, his story is his book called Finding Ultra is really, really honest, but really, really powerful because of it. And then one of the the podcasts that I just published yesterday, a guy called Sean Heinrichs, who's an underwater photographer also talks about um, when he was doing undercover journalism and seeing our impacts on sharks and on manta rays by catching hundreds of thousands of sharks a day for shark fin soup and how that led him to a dark place emotionally and mentally. And these really honest and personal stories are really powerful, particularly, you know, I've experienced this, going through the darkest moments, seeing that there are other people out there dealing with a similar thing is can be really helpful. Um, and for all the people who message you or tell you that you've helped them, I'm sure there are another 10 people who won't ever tell you, but you've helped nonetheless. Do you know what? It wasn't until last year that people started to message me in that way. And that was the point when I was like, I literally was like, yes, that is what I wanted to do with this. I wanted other people to know that it doesn't matter how bad it gets. There's always, let's say that there's always a way out or there's always light at the end of the tunnel because there isn't for everybody. But there's always something to hold on to. And if you can find it, it can be so transformative. And I found it and I want to share it with people. And I think I've just about got it right for sharing it with people now. And I just want to, I mean, every other day someone sends a message saying like, oh, I've just, you know, I've just felt like a bloke pledged today. I tweeted it. I retweeted it because He's on benefits, right? And he, do, he said, I ain't got I any money. Tweet, but yeah. he still pledged because he felt so strongly about it. And I was just like, wow. Like, just, just wow. There's no other words for it. Like, it's not even about, 
it's when like because some people would say oh it's it's just about making like a profile and stuff and being known and all that and if it was that like for me personally I'd, i wouldn't carry on working do you know I'd, I'd focus everything on doing that but mm. i work in the job i do because i want to help people and i don't want to become i don't even want to become a writer per se i don't it's not a career do you know what i mean i i just want to get this message out there and it would just make me so happy to have other people relate to it just the fact that people can relate to it and maybe i i am in that sense filling a void in my life that i lost when i gave up drinking and and taking drugs because i lost all those social interactions and i am getting them people but it's not the same Mm. do you know what i mean social media is what it is it is social but it is it's still a form of media it's not it's not the same as interacting with people face to face on a daily basis but I, i just care about it so much can i just say my my blackbird has just popped see how i call it my blackbird <laughs> he's he started he was singing on the neighbor's roof but he's now popped onto he's got like a there's a, a fence post that's too high at the back of the garden it should be cut to the same level as the fence but he stands on it and sings we can hear him just about actually uh, there's just something so amazing about blackbird song there really is and my elderly neighbor bless her she she now has noticed the birds that are visiting her garden because they're coming to my garden and i yesterday the blackbird because he was singing in the tree that we share and uh she said to me then she was like i do understand why you write about it you know i do understand it now since they've all been visiting the garden i understand it i watch them what what's that one she's got and it was a house sparrow and i explained what every there's about four or five different species that came and and went because i was cutting her tree down for it and uh yeah she not the tree I was just talking about. That's sacred. That's the bird's tree. But um, <laughs> but yeah, she, it's little moments, isn't it? Like when you realise the connection you can make with people and how you can help other people that make something like this so worthwhile. Yeah. So yeah. Joe, I totally I just think... rambled on for ages <laughs> then, but yeah. <laughs> I think I think that might be quite a nice point at which to end. I'm also aware that I don't want to keep yeah. you. I don't want to make you late for your antenatal class. I have um, just noticed the time. Yeah. Is there anything else quickly that I haven't asked about or that you wanted to say that that it would be good to get in before we before we finish? Um, yeah, I think when it comes to the book, uh, the book, as well as having like my experiences, I found this really good framework called the Five Ways to Wellbeing. Um, it came up in some therapy I was having and most people you're nodding so you've you, you've heard of it as well like I I looked at it and was just like oh my god that is bird watching um, so I made this whole five ways to well birding thing um, which is a bit bit lame but it kind of works so um, no, it really works I'd heard of it before but I really yeah. loved your reframing of it on your blog yeah so I've done I've written a chapter on each of them um, it's like the crux of the book. So a chapter about giving something back to other people through bird watching. Um, 
a chapter about taking notice of that's you know where the donut comes from um chapter about with people connecting with nature um but it 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 is it's not just about how do i put this it's not just about me it's about the bigger picture as well we'll just leave it at that um I'm really glad you read out a quote that was not about mental health and like not about birds because I always thought one of the things about what I write about is that it isn't just about those things, even though that's what it is about. Mm. And the fact that you picked up on something different um, was really cool. Uh, you don't have to include any of this. I'm just banging on about it now. No, no, but this yeah. is good. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think I just implore people to get outside and notice things a bit more that is just the most powerful thing that has happened to me through bird watching because yeah. I know about the seasons now and about weather and all these different things that I've learned about I just understand the circadian rhythms of nature so much more and that's what's helped me learn about myself because as I become more connected to a place and to experiences, I become more grounded and there's so much less emphasis on the negative cycle of thoughts that I can become trapped in. And, uh, yeah, I think, If you can just, I mean, I always just say to people about garden bird feeding, I spend just as much time watching my garden birds as I do out bird watching. I call it your bird community, like connecting with your bird community. You know, I called him my blackbird. So he's sitting, yeah. <laughs> I can see him through another window now and he's sitting on my neighbor's garage singing um, and, you know, it's just I know he's there and I'm here and there's a connection there and it's beautiful. And it's all about making those connections, isn't it? And we've spoken about it loads. It's just amazing. I just, sometimes I get completely blown away by the, uh, the brevity of what I write about and what I think and what I believe in. Um, and I'm just like, I have these moments where I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. That's really cool. Let's get get it out there, you know, get other people on board with it. And fingers crossed it will happen. So Yeah, yeah fingers crossed. I mean, I'm going to point people to the blog and hopefully one day I'll be able to point people to where they can buy the book. Okay, Joe, I'm going to let you go. Thank you, because I need to shoot really quickly now. Uh... I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher thanks very much and until next time